Hey everyone, welcome back to my podcast, Anatomy and Physiology Bit by Bit. This is your host, Dr. Steve Sullivan, coming to you from Bucks County, Pennsylvania, which is just outside of Philadelphia, where I teach anatomy and physiology at Bucks County Community College. This episode, we are going to continue on with our discussion of sensation, but we're going to focus now on the special senses. These are the five senses that are centered around your head and face, and their sensory neurons are in the cranial nerves, which are the 12 pairs of nerves that go directly to your head and neck from your brainstem and brain rather than having to go through your spinal cord. You probably remember those from a previous podcast where we covered them. The five special senses are olfaction, which is smell, gustation, which is taste, vision, hearing, and balance and equilibrium. Those are the five special senses. We're going to only talk about the first two in this episode because this is a very large topic and it's going to require a few episodes. The first two, olfaction and gustation, are considered the chemical senses. The chemical senses are called that because the stimuli that stimulate the receptors for them are chemicals, specifically odorants, which are chemicals in the air that make it into your nose and stimulate olfactory receptors so that we can perceive a scent or an odor. And the other ones are tastants, which are chemicals that make their way into our mouth. They stimulate gustatory receptors in our taste buds and then we can perceive what something tastes like. So those two chemical senses are what we're going to focus on in this episode. But first, we have a special guest, and that guest is someone I went to high school with over 30 years ago. His name is Chris Pastina, and Chris is a restaurateur and chef in Oakland, California. And he also runs a nonprofit organization called Community Kitchens in Oakland, California that we're going to talk about. So please join us for this really interesting conversation about flavors and tastes and smells from a chef, and also a little talk about an amazing nonprofit organization that helps feed people in the Oakland, California area. All right, I want to welcome Chef Chris Pastina out in Oakland, California to the show. Welcome, Chris. Oh, thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Thank you for coming. I just want to like let everyone know that Chris and I went to high school together and uh, yeah. back in central New Jersey. And now Chris lives in Oakland, California, where um, he went out there for a career in the restaurant business. So since this episode's about smell and taste, uh, I'm just going to talk about a few things like that. But first off, uh, Chris, what brought you to Oakland from central New Jersey? So I had gone to undergraduate college in New Jersey, and after graduating, I um, decided to go to the Culinary Institute of America, which is in upstate New York. I'd always been kind of interested in cooking, always tooling around, uh, you know, kitchens and things like that, and worked as while well, as an undergraduate in restaurants. And you know, while I was at the Culinary Institute of America, I was really exploring a lot of options on where I wanted to, uh, you know, uh, take my career. And uh, there was a few options, and um, I decided to do an internship in the Bay Area. Uh, that brought me to San Francisco and then to uh, Napa Valley. And once uh, once I came out here to do an internship, I I really fell in love with the with the region. Uh, no snow, 
no humidity. That's nice. <laughs> um, plus, plus the food is fantastic. You, you know, in the uh, mid '90s, we had uh, you know really uh, uh, pretty much like a, a culinary revolution where you know we were really uh, developing a lot of uh, different uh, types of food ingredients and you know we had everything at our fingertips which we still do um and uh um so after graduation i moved back out to uh, the bay area and uh, have been out here uh, ever since that's great i'll tell you about 12 years ago my wife and i did a, a week-long vacation in sonoma and uh, we both like wine and and uh, yeah. i know very little the more I learn about wine, the more I realize how much I do not know about wine, but we had a great yeah. time in Sonoma. We did make our way to Napa as well. Um, mm -hmm. And we had the same thing. Like we lived in center city, Philadelphia, and um, we felt like we really knew what good restaurants were because we've got some, some nice ones in Philly. Um, but we were really blown away by the quality in Northern California. Yeah, it's interesting when we travel and you know, my wife and I do, you know, a lot of traveling and obviously, you know, we're friends with, you know, a lot of people that travel and, you know, we, you know, we go out to and we try to find places to go experience, you know, food and different cuisines and different styles, you know, all over the world. And, uh, you know, the the quality and the, you know, the 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 product that we get in California is, is always just right on par, par with anywhere else in the world. So I feel like we're in the right place. I agree too. And, and from a wine perspective, um, yeah, like we've been, we've been to Paris and we've been to Rome and, and, uh, and we've done wine tours and food tours in both of those cities. And, and, um, and then we really think that California wine is, is right there with, with anybody. Oh yeah. Without a doubt, yeah. yeah, yeah, and there's a little bit more, uh, um, you know, New World wines, you know, which is you know California and United States, that, you know, tend to have a little bit more uh, freedom sometimes in in what in, you know what people can plan, what they can experiment on. So, so you know, experimenting is always fun, right? Because you get to maybe try something you know different or see something different and maybe the you know the quality is not as great or the the curation is not as great because they haven't been doing it for hundreds or thousands of years but the uh the, the creative aspect of it is uh always fun so you uh ran a bunch of restaurants and you were also the chef tell me about designing a menu like when you're trying to put together dishes that you know are going to be pleasing to people and you're and you're considering smells and tastes and mouthfeel and and things like that what are the things that you're trying to consider when you want to come up with something that you feel will be pleasing to as many people as possible um yeah so so the first thing you want to look at is 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 when you're building a menu is how you know how large do you want the menu how how intense do you want the menu and that has to kind of match your kitchen right so that that's more of like a technical you know thing is like you have to have a deep fryer to deep fry Makes sense, right? right. Um, so, uh, uh, so you want to kind of look at that. You want to kind of see see how it is, and then you want to start building the kind of you know uh, within the concept. So, for instance, we had a Mexican restaurant, so we certainly wouldn't be doing uh, you know uh, certain types of cuisine at that Mexican restaurant. We want to kind of stay uh, tried and true to that. Another one was like you know kind of American regional, so there's a little bit more flexibility in what we were able to do, but also like you know, you wouldn't really find certain items on, on that, those types of menus. So you want to kind of, you know, stick within the concept. And then as far as each dish, you, each dish, you want to kind of uh, 
you know, first kind of see how it matches with the other with other dishes when it comes to uh, a visual um, and uh, also when it comes to different textures. Uh, and then what I really like to talk to a lot of people about is like the difference between taste and flavor. And, you know, on a dish, you want to kind of have as many different tastes as you can. Sometimes you want those tastes. And when I say tastes, I mean, you know, salt, uh, sweet, uh, sour, uh, umami, um, and uh, um, did I say them all? Bitter. Them all. Uh, bitter, sorry. There you <laughs> yep. uh, so, uh, so you want to make sure that, you, uh, you know, you're, you're kind of exploring each of those tastes on each of the dishes. And then, you know, sometimes you might not want bitter or you might want not want sweet or you might want a little bit more salt here and a little bit more sour here. So like you want to kind of, uh, you know, kind of test those levels and, and find those ingredients that kind of give you those levels. And I always say that taste is quantifiable, right? So if I pour a glass of water, put a cup of sugar into it and then pour another glass, glass of water and put two cups of sugar into it, the one with two sugars is it is sweeter than the one with one cup. That's quantifiable. It's undeniable. You can't deny me that. So, so like that's where you really want to start. It's like how do how do I you know explore these different tastes and like you know what do I want out of each of these dishes and like then kind of look at the spectrum of the entire menu. Is my menu too much bitter? Is my menu too much sour? Is my menu too much salty? How do I kind of you know balance balance out the menu in totality and not just in the dish. Uh, then we look at flavors and flavors are very subjective. You know, I uh, I always use the idea that, you know, I grew up, you know, in an Italian family and we would go to Brooklyn and my grandfather had a uh, had a garden in, in his backyard and in Brooklyn and um, you know, in the summertime, we would go there and we would eat out in the backyard and he had basil everywhere. And I'll never, ever, ever forget the smell of basil or the taste of basil in those dishes. Stephen, you weren't yeah. there. You, you could not know what that taste is. You can know what the taste of basil is, but you, you know, that wouldn't register with you. So that right. flavor is very personal. It's very personal. So like, so like, you know, that's where I think that, you know, chefs and creativity really comes into, into play is like, I want to take my personal experiences, my personal, uh, you know, what I've personally um, uh, tasted before, what I've personally uh, eaten before and kind of blend those two together or blend things together to, to make a dish complete. And that's where it's very personal, personal. And like, that's where, you know, chefs really kind of separate themselves is that personal relationship that I have with food in that world of flavor, going to be able to translate to something successful on the plate that other people will also enjoy and recognize. And that's a, that's a really tough process. And it's in it. And that's the intimidating process. That's the brush strokes. That's the color palette. Like that's all the things that, you know, a dish can have somebody experience and, and your experience being when you're coming to my restaurant, you know, my expression of like what I've experienced before. And I'm trying to integrate you into that um, uh, experience. That's interesting. I, you brought up things about like flavor and taste being different, and and you said uh, you said uh, visual early on. And and one of the things that I I cover in my classes that I teach for anatomy and physiology is when we talk about sensation. And sensation is a very large chapter of a of an anatomy and physiology textbook. 
And I talk about how the sensation is really a collaborative effort based on what we ultimately end up perceiving from a sensory experience. So, so the, the, what a food looks like, what it smells like, what it tastes like, what it feels like, those all go into whether or not it's a pleasurable perception of the experience. And uh, yeah, that's, that's yeah. really I mean, good. I think, I think the, I think the first thing that people see, I mean, the first thing people experience is that, that look of the food. Right. Mm -hmm. And like, you want to make it look presentable, you know, as a chef, you know, maybe at home, you know, you know, with kids, you don't have to worry about the presentation, but you know, we do. And there, and there's different levels of, you know, presentation and like, how do you present things? And like, it doesn't have to be like this, you know, full on, like, um, you know, Picasso painting on a plate, you know, it could just be a very kind of rustic, uh, you know, kind of, uh, uh, feel to it. Like, um, you know, like, a the, the Van Gogh potatoes painting where it's just kind of this rustic potato, you know, and it's mm -hmm. like, but it's like, it's beautiful unto itself or like, you know, however you present it, but you just want to make it, you know, clean and, you know, uh, um, enjoyable visually for somebody and then you know the next thing is our, our aromas like you, you want it to smell good uh, i mean we use our all the like all of our senses as a chef in the kitchen you know touches you know a, a huge part of what we do is like you know we we, we you know when we're butchering we want to feel you know the um uh the beef or the fish and we want to kind of you know use our use our uh knife skills and like how much pressure do we put on the knife to kind of slice something or cut something or chop something um you know smell is like you know you know i you know i, I sometimes i walk into a restaurant and i'm like you know toast is burning <laughs> you know because like i'm just yeah. smelling it <laughs> you know or like you know and you it, you know, right it's away. just like it triggers you know it just triggers something and you know and like and like that's a really important thing or like you know the 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 braise in the oven is getting to the point where it's caramelizing on top and i could smell that you know coming from the oven and i, I know to check it like all those things are are you know huge parts of what we do and you know visually obviously we talked about that and then the uh, taste and flavor yeah and it's hard to it's hard to want to eat something that you don't like the smell of right mm -hmm. there's like there's a connection there there's a there's a yeah. you're probably familiar with this there's a in southeast asia there's a fruit called durian and yeah, bread fruit. Yeah. yeah yeah so yeah, yeah. And, and durian smells, smells really horrible. bad but yeah. it has a really good like sweet custard type of type of taste to it yep i use that as an example a lot in that kind of flavor world right because if you don't know what durian tastes or breadfruit tastes like right. you're you're just not going to eat it but like right. when you do people love it <laughs> yeah right and and in thailand there's there's signs uh, like on almost every hotel like no durian like you're not even allowed to bring it indoors yeah. places <laughs> yeah. um, because it smells taxis have signs that say no durian i can't smell toasted coconut for some reason Really interesting. So odd thing. That could be a genetic yeah. thing. It could be um and I have people no idea. <laughs> well, people are gonna learn later on in this episode about olfactory receptors, and it could be a genetic yeah. thing that you don't have the receptor that responds to that odorant molecule from toasted yeah. coconut. It, it could be. Yeah. I mean, another thing is what we call nociceptors um in anatomy, which are pain receptors. And your taste buds have those too. And that's where like mm -hmm. capsaicin comes in, where something is spicy. So, right. so it adds to the experience that now there's actually a little bit of pain associated right. with it, with it, with it. Yeah.
Yeah, it's quite amazing. So I also want to ask you about this really interesting um, thing about you with this nonprofit organization you're involved in. I think it's called Dining for Justice. Yeah, yeah. So Dining for Justice is a part of the uh, um, the nonprofit, uh, which is called Community Kitchens. Uh, Community Kitchens was was born out of the pandemic, and kind of we used um, a lot of the kind of groundwork that World Central Kitchen uh, brought to the Bay Area and Oakland specifically. Uh, you know, uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with World Central Kitchen, Jose Andres. Is that Jose Andres? Yeah, Jose Andres. Uh, yeah. Okay. So he goes around the world and kind of, you know, helps uh, feed people in need. Uh, he's in a uh, uh, variety of places right now. And he sets up kitchens and kind of feeds people. Uh, I've been seeing him uh, um, in Israel lately. Yeah. Yeah, he's in Israel, uh, Ukraine. Um, he set up shop in Maui for a little while, but uh, in um, uh, in Oakland, uh, when the pandemic hit, uh, he came out, and I, I've I've had a relationship with the uh, uh, Jose Andreas group, not him specifically, but a lot of the people that work with him uh, over the years. When the Sonoma fires happened, uh, we did some work with them, uh, and uh, when uh, the pandemic hit. He came to Oakland. Uh, well, his you know World Central Kitchen came to Oakland. They reached out to me. I did some work through the um, uh, through Eat, Learn, Play, which is uh, the Curry Foundation. Uh, so we we all kind of worked together, and um, we started a program where we would purchase uh, meals from restaurants and then distribute them to. Uh, the, the the underserved communities, uh, whether it be uh, the elderly, uh, kids who you would usually get meals at school or the unhoused community. And um, so we set up programs to do that. We were participants in that. Uh, you know, I kind of helped get uh, people to help participate in it. And as we were going through it, we recognized that this need was not going to go away and that uh, World Central Kitchen uh, most likely would go away. Their funding would get up, and they had funding through the federal government. So me and a few other restaurateurs kind of got together, and we said, well, let, let's figure out how we fill fill this void. And um, well, we did a lot of work to kind of get, get some funding and, and put some stuff together. And uh, we uh, started kind of filling the void, and we started picking up where they left off, where we were buying uh, meals from uh, restaurants. And, you know, to keep things going, we we decided to put together a program called Dining for Justice. And Dining for Justice is uh, really very simple. Uh, when you go out to dine in Oakland, you we add a 1% to your bill uh, at select restaurants. Uh, it's not it's not a law. It's not anything. If, if, if the guests, like, take the 1% off, we take the 1% off. We're not trying to, you know, do anything. We're just trying to, you know, feed people. Uh, we had one percent. That one percent goes uh, directly to to fund these programs, and um, uh, it helps us keep stay sustainable beyond our grants and uh, uh, the the fundraising money that we put together. Uh, and now we're 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 taking the uh, program community kitchens to uh, new places and where we want to go is uh, we want to build a food hub where we're able to uh, produce meals ourselves as, as we're coming out of the pandemic it's a little bit more difficult for the restaurants to provide 100 200 meals a day uh, as they're getting busier uh, during the pandemic it was great because they you know they weren't 
serving that many meals and like they this way they were not only feeding people they were keeping their doors open and they were uh providing great you know jobs for people that they can so so people could still go to work and, and earn an income um so now we're working on putting together a food hub and we're working with the county and the state on getting uh, uh, funding for that. And uh, this way we could kind of keep ourselves sustainable for for uh, years and years to come. But uh, it's, a, it's a really great program and we have a lot of support and, uh, you know, we, we work with uh, some really great people. That's awesome. A food insecurity is so epidemic right now yeah. um, everywhere, but, uh, mm-hmm. but we're, what you're doing is really, really admirable. So the website for Community Kitchens is ckoakland.org. Is that a good place for people to go if they want to help out in some way or donate? Yeah, you can donate there and you can read all about the programs that we do. And uh, yeah, we feed, uh, we do about four to 5,000 meals a month, something like that. Wow. Wow. How many yeah. restaurants are participating in the... Dining for Justice. Uh, we have, a, I think we have about 50 restaurants right now. That's great. And and it's 1%, right? So you have you, you have a $100 check, you add a dollar. It's a dollar. And that yeah. helps to feed yeah. people. That's yeah. a no-brainer. Unbelievably, yes. Yeah, yeah we, we don't get pushback from people. People aren't pushing back on it I at would all. think it's, not. Yeah, it's, it's uh, um, I think it, it makes... It makes the restaurant feel good. It makes the employees feel good. It makes the guests feel good that, that you know, we're all doing our part every day. That's awesome, Chris. Um, as a thank you for your you being here, I'm going to make a donation to Community Kitchens. Oh, thank you. I appreciate um, that. I, it's, it's, such a good, it's such a good cause. And um, hopefully I'll be out to Northern California sometime. And Yeah. You know, yeah, we could get a cup of coffee at High Wire Roasters. That would be awesome. At High Wire. <laughs> so... <laughs> so all right, Chris, I don't want to keep you any longer. Um, you've been really generous with your time. So I want to thank you so much for joining uh, joining us at the podcast. Anything, anything last things you, you want to throw no, out there? It's great to see you. It's been 30 plus years and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm happy you're it, doing so great. Yeah. Yeah, you too. You as well. You as well. All right. Thank you, Chris. All right, I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did with Chris Pastina, who went to Monroe Township High School with me a long, long time ago and is now doing amazing things in Oakland, California. If you want to see what Community Kitchens is doing to help feed people in the Oakland, California area, go to ckoakland.org. And if you're so inclined, you can make a donation. I just made one myself to help this amazing organization feed people in Oakland, California, who could really use some help. All right, so I think it is time, having said all that, to get into the content of this episode on the chemical senses, which are smell and taste. So let's get after it. All right, everybody, it's time to get started with the content for this episode, and we're going to start with olfaction. Uh, Olfaction is your sense of smell, and it's the first of the chemical senses we're going to discuss. 
I do want to start off by talking about the anatomy of the nose a bit. This is something that typically you wouldn't see in a textbook until the respiratory chapter, but I think it's important to get a good lay of the land for the anatomy of the nose. We're not going to go into too much detail, but the parts that are pertinent for olfaction, I think we should discuss for a minute. If you look at your nose from the outside, looking at from the anterior, you're going to see the, the tip of your nose, which we call the apex. And laterally to the tip of the nose on the sides, you're going to see these expansions come out that are flexible. You can squeeze them if you want to pinch your nose closed. And those are called the ala nasi. They are the walls of the naris or nostril. And this is the entrance to the inside of your nose. And the first part you're getting to when you go inside your nose is called the vestibule, divided by the nasal septum, which is the wall that divides your nasal cavity and vestibule, which is the entrance to your nasal cavity, into a left and a right. From the outside, we're mostly going to be looking at cartilage. The very top of your nose, which is right between your eyes, which is called the bridge of your nose, is bone. Those are the nasal bones of your facial bones. That's the only part that's bone, except for when you get into the nasal cavity's septum. So the nasal bones are at the bridge of the nose between your eyes, and then the rest of your nose is cartilage and dense connective tissue, plus the skin that's covering it. When you get inside and you see that nasal septum, you're going to see something that's made up of bone and hyaline cartilage. That nasal septum is a vertical wall, and the bones that contribute to it are the vomer of your facial bones and the perpendicular plate of the ethmoid bone. That ethmoid bone is part of your cranial bones. The roof of the nasal cavity is the cribriform plate of the ethmoid bone. It is horizontal. And if you remember from your skull studies, that cribriform plate has tiny holes going through it. Those are called the cribriform foramina, or sometimes known as the olfactory foramina. And the reason for that is because the olfactory axons, the olfactory nerves axons, go through those holes so that they can travel from the nasal cavity into your cranial cavity. Two more parts of the ethmoid bone are the nasal conchi. Our nasal septum has on it these ridges called conchi, which is the plural of concha. There's a superior, a middle, and an inferior concha. The superior and middle conchi are actually part of the ethmoid bone. The inferior concha is its own bone. And what they do is they increase the surface area of the nasal cavity. In between those conchi are what we call meatuses, and those meatuses create some turbulence so that the air travels back to where it's supposed to when we inhale. But also increasing that surface area means we have more room for what's called the nasal mucosa, which is the epithelial lining of the nasal cavity, which is really important for olfaction. So let's talk about that mucous membrane of the olfactory system called the olfactory mucosa. It consists of three different cells, 
olfactory cells, which are the neurons of olfaction, supporting cells, and basal stem cells. The olfactory cells are the sensory neurons of the olfactory nerve. So remember, olfactory nerve is cranial nerve one. And what they end up serving as is the first order neuron of olfaction. Olfactory cells have tiny little non-motile cilia on them that extend into the nasal cavity. These are called olfactory hairs. They're the only part of your body where neurons are exposed to the outside world. And that means they're at a lot of risk. So they replenish themselves every 60 days or so. We're constantly replacing our olfactory cells. The supporting cells are the cells next to the olfactory cells that kind of are what the olfactory cells are embedded in. And then we have these basal stem cells, which are along the basement membrane of the olfactory epithelium. And those are the ones that are going to divide and become new olfactory cells. The supporting cells also secrete mucus into the nasal cavity. And that's important because the mucus lining of the nasal cavity is what the odorant molecules that we inhale will dissolve in so that they can stimulate the olfactory hairs. So these olfactory hairs bind odorant molecules. And that is the stimulus that activates olfactory receptors. We've got about 400 different odorant molecules that can trigger our olfactory receptors, and we have a different receptor for each of them. It's the combination of which different olfactory receptors are stimulated and how many at once that is how we can perceive what a scent is and its intensity. Keep in mind that these olfactory receptors each have multiple olfactory hairs on them. And these are not the hairs that you see in your nose. Those are the guard hairs. The olfactory hairs are cilia, multiple cilia, on the dendrites of these olfactory neurons. These receptors have a really low threshold. They're real sensitive. So it doesn't take a whole lot of odorant binding proteins to result in an action potential. The odorant binding proteins don't directly stimulate gated ion channels. Rather, a second messenger system results in the production of cyclic AMP. And the local potential is created when cyclic AMP stimulates the opening of sodium and calcium ion channels, causing an influx of positive ions, depolarizing the membrane. And if we reach threshold, the nerve signal will travel along the olfactory neuron's axon through those cribriform foramina of the ethmoid bone and make their way into the cranial cavity. Now remember, the local potential that we're going to get from this is a generator potential because this is the only special sense where the sensory receptor is part of the sensory neuron itself. It is not a separate cell. So the local potential we're going to get is a generator potential. Once those axons make their way into the cranial cavity, they're going to synapse with dendrites and neurosomas of the second order neurons of olfaction, which are in the olfactory bulb, which you may remember from looking at the brain. Just inferior to the frontal lobe and superior to the ethmoid bone were these dilated neurons called olfactory bulbs that then bottleneck down as they give way to axons into the olfactory tract. 
So the olfactory bulb is the dendrites and neurosomas of the second order of olfaction, and the olfactory tract is the axons of the second order neuron of olfaction. There's actually two different kinds of cells in the olfactory bulbs. One is called mitral cells, and the other is called tufted cells, and these are both neurons. When the axons of the olfactory neurons, or olfactory receptor axons, go up through the cribriform foramina, they will synapse with each of these kinds of olfactory bulb cells. In fact, the dendrites of the mitral cells and the tufted cells, along with the axon terminals of the olfactory receptors, will form a circular structure called the olfactory glomerulus. We've got about 2,000 of these olfactory glomeruli, but we have between 10 and 20 million olfactory receptors. So lots and lots of olfactory receptor axons are going to have to converge on each olfactory glomerulus. And every axon of a receptor in one glomerulus is stimulated by the same odorant molecule. If the synapse results in another nerve signal, it's going to propagate along the axons of the neurons in the olfactory tract, which is going to move caudally and bypass the thalamus. So unlike the general senses we saw, this one's not going to synapse in the thalamus. Instead, it's going to go toward the temporal lobe of the cerebrum, the hypothalamus, and the amygdala. It's that neocortex of the temporal lobe that is responsible for perceiving the scents we smell, as well as comparing them to the memories of scents so we can identify them later. So if you walk into a house and it smells like someone's been making chocolate chip cookies, you know that because you've smelled chocolate chip cookies before, and you have a memory stored of that sensory experience. So when you smell it again, your brain will compare the current sensation to memories you have of other sensations. So that's a really important aspect. Also, because of the link to the hypothalamus and the rest of the limbic system, we also have emotional and visceral responses to smells. So, for example, not only does the smell of chocolate chip cookies make you think of chocolate chip cookies, it might actually make you think of someone in your life who made you chocolate chip cookies before, or maybe a memory of making them in the past that might actually evoke an emotional response. That's because of the link that olfaction has to the limbic system. You might have a visceral response. So if you think about a time where maybe you got sick from eating or drinking something, and that could be maybe you had food poisoning, or maybe you drank a little too much and you got sick. Even smelling that same thing months and years after that experience could give you a visceral response. It might actually make you nauseous to smell it because of the link to the limbic system. So there's more to olfaction than just being able to identify a scent. You also are going to have other responses to that scent. They could be emotional. They could be visceral. I mean, think about another situation where someone is wearing a perfume or a cologne that you recognize from someone in your past who maybe you had a romantic relationship with and it brings back some emotional feelings. That happens, and that is why. Because the olfactory systems link to these parts of your brain.
Another important part of that is to make sure that we don't eat things that smell rancid, right? So if you get a visceral response, if something makes you nauseous or gives you a jump back response because it smells real bad, you're really unlikely to eat that. And those responses tend to come from food that is spoiled or food that has gone bad and now has bacteria that are producing a foul odor. And we're unlikely to eat those things. That's real important for us because it protects us from getting sick from eating food that could make us sick. So that's a really good evolutionary adaptation for us is to protect us from getting sick by giving us an unpleasant perception of odors that come from food that has gone bad and could potentially make us sick. Now, here's another cool thing, that some odorants don't just trigger olfactory receptors. They also trigger nociceptors, specifically on the trigeminal nerve. And these include things like when you smell ammonia or chlorine or when you smell like um, the compound that's in hot peppers. And so we get an unpleasant sensation from those, not just from the smell, but we actually get almost like a pain sensation from that because of the nociceptor actions. So it turns out that we can actually identify or really distinguish between somewhere up to 4,000 different kinds of odors. Some people can do even more than that. Like people who are food critics or wine experts and they can they can smell something and pick out all the little tiny different things that they call like notes in the smell of something, they might actually be able to distinguish up to 10,000 different odors, which I think is amazing because I know I can't do that. I like to drink wine once in a while, but when someone's telling me they're smelling a glass of wine and, they're, and they can smell raisins and leather and strawberries, and I'm like, I smell wine. So yeah, I don't, I don't get those people, but they're out there. Um, so it is, it is kind of interesting how our sense of smell works and how different it is from person to person, and even our subjective responses to olfaction, like what some people think is a pleasant smell, other people don't think is a pleasant smell. All right, so let's talk about taste or gustation. Taste uses sensory receptors called gustatory receptors or taste receptors. And they respond to molecules called tastins, which dissolve in the saliva in your mouth. The gustatory receptors are bundled together in units called taste buds, and we've got about 4,000 of them. The taste buds are distributed throughout the oral cavity, but are mostly concentrated on the tongue. Now, some people think that the roughened parts of their tongue, the little bumps in their tongue, are taste buds, but they're not really taste buds. What those are, are lingual papillae. And there's four types of lingual papillae. So they're like these projections off the surface. And that's what you're feeling in the roughened portion of the tongue. You're not feeling taste buds. Not all lingual papillae have taste buds in them, but some of them do. So again, we've got four types of lingual papillae. So let's talk about them for a second. The one that we have the most of are called filiform papillae, and they're small spikes found on the surface of the tongue. 
They don't have any taste buds, but what they do have is touch receptors. So not only when you put something in your mouth are you stimulating taste receptors so that you can see what it tastes like, you also have these touch receptors so that you can feel the texture of food. So that's an important aspect of whether or not we enjoy eating what we're eating is the actual texture of the food. The next type of papillae is called valet papillae. And they're found on the proximal tongue forming the shape of the letter V. So they're closer to the back of your mouth. They're large, they're round, there's not that many of them, and they have a lot of taste buds in them. On the lateral surfaces of your tongue, on the sides, we have foliate papillae. And they do contain taste buds, but those taste buds typically degenerate during the toddler phase. So after you're five, six years old, you don't really have too many foliate papillae taste buds anymore. Um, as we get to middle age, our ability to replace taste buds goes down and we become less able to distinguish different tastes. So taste buds are another type of nervous system structure that does regenerate and replace themselves. But like I just said, as you get older, that capacity goes down. So you might actually notice yourself less sensitive to flavors as you get older. The last type of papillae are called fungiform papillae, and they're shaped like mushrooms, which are a fungus, and that's where the name comes from. You also can find these throughout the tongue surface, but they're mostly concentrated on the distal tip of the tongue and the lateral surfaces on the sides of the tongue. Each fungiform papilla has about three taste buds, and it also has touch receptors. So again, this is another one that will respond to the food's texture, what we call its mouthfeel. All these taste buds are located in the epithelium of the oral cavity. The epithelial tissue surrounds each oval-shaped taste bud except for a small hole on the apical surface called a taste pore. Each taste bud consists of three different types of epithelial cells. There's the receptor, called the gustatory cell. We also call them taste cells. We have the supporting cells, and we have the basal stem cells. Now, the gustatory cells have gustatory microvilli, which are also known as taste hairs, and they project into the taste pore, and that is what's going to serve as the receptors that are going to respond to the tastants that dissolve in the saliva. Now, this is our first separate cell. Gustatory cells are considered separate cells. They are not sensory neurons like we saw in olfaction. They're separate. So when they are stimulated, they will produce a receptor potential. That's the local potential that is created by the tastant. These gustatory cells only live up to about 10 days, and they're replaced as the basal stem cells differentiate into new cells. The rest of the cells are supporting cells, and they have no role in gustation other than to physically support the gustatory and basal cells. 
The proximal end of the gustatory cells contains synaptic vesicles, and they come in contact with the dendrites of the first-order neurons of gustation. So proximal meaning at the bottom of the taste bud. When the tastins dissolve in the saliva, they fill the taste pore and stimulate the gustatory cells either on the hair or on the cell surface itself. The potential created in the gustatory cell, like I said before, is the receptor potential. And that stimulates the exocytosis of neurotransmitter from the gustatory cell's synaptic vesicles. That's where the synapse with the gustatory neuron comes in. So there are three cranial nerves that contribute to gustation. So we have three different first-order neurons of gustation. They are the facial nerve, cranial nerve 7, the glossopharyngeal nerve, cranial nerve 9, and the vagus nerve, cranial nerve 10. And it all depends on where in the oral cavity the taste bud is located. That's what's going to determine which cranial nerve it uses as its first-order neuron. So if the synapse generates a nerve signal, that nerve signal is going to travel to the solitary nucleus of the brainstem's medulla oblongata, and there it's going to synapse with the second-order neurons. Some of the second-order neurons will go to the thalamus, and others are going to go to the hypothalamus and the amygdala of the limbic system. In the thalamus, the second-order neurons synapse with the third-order neurons, and that will carry the nerve signal to the primary gustatory center in the insular lobe of the cerebrum, and that's where conscious perception of taste will take place. We can compare what we're tasting to memories of previous things we've tasted so that we can identify it, and we can also perceive the intensity of the taste based on how many tastants stimulated the same receptors. Now there's more to the flavor of a food than just the taste. We are also stimulating the touch receptors for mouthfeel. We're stimulating nociceptors with things like capsaicin, which is what we find in hot peppers. And we're stimulating thermoreceptors for temperature. All of those things contribute to our experience of the food that we're bringing in. Not to mention the most influential on flavor is the smell. We're also triggering olfactory receptors, whether they are going up into your nasal cavity from the outside or going up the back of your throat and stimulating them from the inside. So all of those things contribute to the flavor of something. Now, taste receptors can respond to five primary tastes. So there is some research suggesting that there are more, but we're going to stick with these. And they are confirmed to be salty, bitter, sour, sweet, and umami, which means savory or meaty. So all of those things, combined with the food's texture, temperature, smell, and even what it looks like, right? So you can look at a food and say, nah, right? That will influence whether or not you enjoy it. All of those things will contribute to that. And the orbitofrontal cortex of the cerebrum will receive all of those sensory neurosignals from the other aspects of flavor and integrate them with taste for our overall perception of what we're eating. Now, keep in mind that we're also sending nerve signals to that hypothalamus and amygdala, and that's where we're going to activate food-related memories and emotions or autonomic reflexes associated with food like vomiting, gagging, and causing us to salivate more. 
And uh, all of that is, is kind of interesting because we think of tasting something, we don't realize what really goes into the flavor of it, and then also what else we're stimulating in our nervous system besides just perceiving the flavor of a food. All right, that's going to do it for the episode on special senses, taste and smell, gustation and olfaction. Next time, we're going to talk about vision. And that's an episode in and of itself because that is a very long topic and that's going to need a whole episode just to cover it. Big thanks to my friend Chris Pastina from Oakland, California, giving us a lot of insight into what smell and taste means to a restaurateur and also about his amazing program out in Oakland, Community Kitchens. So thank you again, Chris. I hope this episode has helped you get your beer better in A&P and I'll see you next time. Anatomy and Physiology Bit by Bit is a production of Minus 55 Media. Please take the time to rate the podcast, and don't forget to check out my YouTube channel, Student Help for AP. That's Student Help, the number four, AP. There's a whole lot of tutor videos on there that I think you're going to find helpful. Special thanks to my family, Bucks County Community College, and McGraw-Hill Education, where you can find Anatomy and Physiology Digital Suite, my low-cost, tutor video-based digital learning solution for anatomy and physiology already being used at several colleges and universities.